Oh, good morning, everyone. My name is John Malella, and I'm going to be preaching today. We're going to be talking a little bit about uh, something that, that really hits home for all of us. In 2006, after wearing glasses for about 27 years, I decided to go in for a procedure, which I have to go to my notes, It is known as laser-assisted in situ keratomiliusis. Some of you may know it as LASIK. (laughs) So I selected a LASIK doctor. They're great, these guys. They've done about 40 or 50,000 of these things by the time you go see them. So you figure they have enough expertise that they're not going to slip up and blind you during the procedure. So a few people in my office had gone to this one doctor in Tyson's Corner. So I went there, and I was a candidate. Not everyone's a candidate for this. I was a candidate because I suffered from something called extreme myopia, which is also known as nearsightedness. So they told me I was a candidate, and I sat down with the surgeon, and he described the procedure. He asked me if I wanted to see a video of what it would look like, and I said, absolutely not. (laughs) One of the wiser things I've done. So he described the procedure, what it was going to be like for me, and he said, well, we're going to sit you down, lay you down on a table, and things are going to go black for a while, and when you get up from the table, you're going to be able to see. And he said, you're going to feel some discomfort. (laughs) Now, I always worry when a doctor says that. I always worry. But here's the way it worked out. And by the way, what they were going to do to my eye, and he, okay, hopefully no one has a real weak stomach here. What they were going to do to my eye is that basically they were going to cut it. Yes, LASIK means they cut your eyeball. And the reason they have to cut it is because it's of the wrong shape. And they use a laser to do this. And they basically reshape it so that you can see. So I'm lying there on the table, pitch black, and I'm hearing the doctor say one click, two click, three clicks. They finish the first eye in like five minutes. I mean, this is ridiculous. And then they go to the second eye. And I remember what the doctor said. He said that you're going to feel the second eye more. He wasn't lying. I felt the second eye more. What he didn't say was that there was also going to be a bit of a smell. Yes. Which I realized as I smelled it that he didn't tell me about that. The second eye, I began to feel a little bit more. And I have to say this, for anybody considering this, it's okay. Because just about the time that I thought, I don't really want to take this anymore, it was done. So I felt a flush of water in my eyes. And then the lights went on. And I got up from the table, and the first thing I looked at was the clock. For the first time in 27 years, even though it was blurry and it felt like somebody had put sand in my eyes, I was able to see the clock. Today, you and I hope to experience something a little similar. See, we're going to do some spiritual LASIK today. And our doctor, our surgeon, is none other than Dr. James, who we've been listening to in the last few months, the little brother of Jesus. And what James is going to try to correct today in our vision is a very common visual problem. It's a nearsightedness, but it's a nearsightedness when it comes to money. So we need to pray. Let's pray. Lord, 
We're in such different places today. And I'm well aware, God, in a group this size, I mean, some people here, they're running with you. Other people are walking with you. And some people are just dragging. I know that uh, there are people here that are just torn down by anxieties. And uh, some of us are sick. We've got physical ailments. Others of us have the weight of the world on our shoulders. We're worried about things. Lord, today what we want to do is we want to take you at your word where you said, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. So we do that right now, Lord, as best as we are able. And I know some of us are just half broken or maybe fully broken. But as much as we are able today, Lord, we draw near to you, and we are expectant because you said so, that you will draw near to us. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. So we're in the book of James, actually the letter of James, one of the early church leaders, and he wrote this letter to the churches scattered around the Mediterranean in the first century. And I would say, if you took the biographies of Jesus, you know, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you put them in the form of a letter, I would say it would look very much like what James wrote. It seems that James was paying attention to his big brother as his big brother was speaking. doesn't mean he believed everything that he was saying, but as Jesus was doing his ministry, it seems that James was listening. How many of you wish you would have listened more to your big brother? I wish I would have. And I'm not just saying that because he's in the audience right now. I'd like you all to welcome uh, Pastor Robert Malella from Atlanta, Georgia. I told him I was going to do that. Sorry. I had to do that. Glad you could be with us today, Rob. Over the past few months, we've heard from a number of voices up here. We've heard from Dean and Bill and Ed, Alex, and Kevin on some of those themes from Jesus' ministry that James has taken in his letter. Things about not being judgmental, about the proper use of the tongue, about having a godly perspective, about the sovereignty of God, and about love. So today, James has some things to say about money. In a little bit, we're going to look at three specific warnings that he has about money or the misuse of money and how we can avoid them. So let's read James chapter 5. And why don't you all stand up with me? We're going to go old school. So James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, if you want to dial into your Bible app, you can do that. And I just want to give you some heads up. This is James's hottest rhetoric of the book. So just prepare yourself for this. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 He says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded, or rusted. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages... You fail to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves 
in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. You may be seated. Well, that's a cheerful passage. So weep and wail, he begins. Why would James tell his readers, weep and wail? Okay, well, because of the misery that's coming upon them, he says. And the cause of their misery is their wealth has rotted, moths have eaten their clothes, gold and silver has rusted. Interesting how he changes tenses. He talks about these things as if they already happened. James, in a way, is putting on his Old Testament prophet hat because they would often talk about things that were to come as if they already happened. Now, let me back up. For a second, I need to frame this a little bit. Is James going to tell us that money is bad? And I would say no. He's not going to say that. He's not going to say that money by itself is bad. We know if you read the Bible that there are some wealthy people in the Bible that love God. Abraham, the father of our faith, he was a wealthy guy. Anybody that reads Genesis will, will figure that out. We know that Job was also a man of great riches. This guy had means. So wealth alone is not bad. We know that we need money for things, right? We need money to do things. We need money to run a church. We need money to build a building. Yes, we will be passing the offering plate after the sermon. Yes. So money by itself is not bad. And you probably are familiar with one of the most misquoted verses of the Bible, 1 Timothy 6.10. You may have heard it as, money is a root of all evil. No, that's not what it says. What does it say? It says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it is particularly something we're prone to as human beings. So who is James talking to in the passage? Well, we know that the entire letter is written to Christians, probably to Jewish believers in the Messiah. We know from chapter 1 where James begins to talk about this theme of wealth, he begins to talk about a group of people, rich people, wealthy people, who are oppressing the poor. And among those poor, some of them are Christians. And I read some commentaries on this, and the consensus seems to be that these unbelievers were oppressing the new Christian communities, and these are the people that James is addressing. So it might be easy for us to read this and say, well, this doesn't apply to us. You know, I wouldn't want to be these guys, because it's not going to go well for them. I want to move on to verse 7, where... James starts to talk about brothers and, you know, be patient and stuff like that. And I think if we did that, if we bypassed this scripture, this section, I think we would miss some things. Talking about the people that James is addressing, I have to say, I don't think these people got up in the morning and said to themselves, this is an awesome day to oppress people. I don't think they did that. I don't think these people woke up in the morning and said, wow, sun is shining, the weather is good, this is a perfect time to grind the face of the poor. I don't think they did that. So how did they wind up doing that? I think over time, they had been formed in a certain way. The lenses of their eyes had been malformed in a certain way. The choices they made, the things that they chose to believe about money, and I have to say the lies that they accepted as truth, shaped their lives. So what does that have to do with us? Brothers and sisters, I think because of where we live 
and the time in which we live, I think we're in danger of absorbing these same lies. And we're in danger of being malformed in the same way that they were. Why is this so high on James's list? I mean, you know, space is, is precious in a letter, especially back then. Why is it so high in his list that he's devoting a chunk of his letter to this? I have to say because it was high on his big brother's list. Uh, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells a story. He tells a parable. And you may know it as the parable of the sower. And he talks about a farmer that goes out and he, he spreads seed. He's sowing seed. And what happens to the farmer is he sows some seed and immediately gets eaten by the birds. That's what happens to this seed. And then he sows some other seed, and it springs up, but it has no root, so it, it dies quickly. He sows some other seed, and it takes root, but it gets choked. So it never grows, never bears fruit. But there is some seed that falls on noble soil, and it grows, and it sprouts, and it bears fruit, and it says, Jesus said it goes 30, 60, or 100 times what was planted. Amazingly fruitful. Jesus explains this parable to his disciples, because like many of us, we read this and say, well, what, you know, seed, farmer, don't really get it. He says this is what's going on. He says, there are three things that choke the plant. And he names them. He says, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things, they come in and they choke the word. Do you remember a chapter or two before, James said to his readers, he said, humbly accept the word that has been planted in you. Where did he get that image? So what's going to choke that? One of the things that's going to choke that is the deceitfulness of wealth. It's going to prevent us from growing in our faith. It's going to hijack our joy. It's going to pinch our peace. And it's going to stifle our effectiveness as believers. Can we agree this morning that money changes us? Or at least has the potential to. And I have to say this, it doesn't usually change us for the good. Some disturbing studies on this. Very disturbing. In a recent TED Talk, Psychologist Paul Piff, that's a name. What we've been finding, he says this, what we've been finding across dozens of studies and thousands of participants across this country is that as a person's level of wealth increases, their feelings of compassion and empathy go down. i read that again. What we've been finding across dozens of studies and thousands of participants across this country is that as a person's level of wealth increases, their feelings of compassion and empathy go down. Hmm. Another recent study published in the journal Emotion in 2011, researchers revealed that in a study of 300 college students, the lower the subject's family income, the higher their score on compassion tests. And that's controlling for all kinds of different personalities. So money can change us. Money can change us. Money can change our intuitions, our beliefs, our actions. So where are we malformed? 
into wrong thinking and wrong actions about money. Let's look at three ways that I think James highlights for us that we can chew on for a little bit. Some ways that we might be deceived. The first way I think is pretty obvious is the idea that money equals security. Money equals security. Money gives off an air of permanence, of stability. Are you like me? I've got a 401k, which is probably a good thing because otherwise I don't think I'd save anything. But I've got this 401k connected to my job. And are you like me? The stock market does well, the 401k goes up, and I smile. That's good. The stock market takes a dip, and my 401k goes down, and I get nervous. Are you like that? We're looking for security. Well, how much more would it take to make me feel secure? How much? Just a little bit more. Right? Just a little bit more than what I have will make me feel secure. If I only had a little bit, a little more of a cushion, if I didn't feel the bills pressing on me like they do, I would feel more secure. Really? Let me say this. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you belong to him today, if you have received forgiveness of sins, can I say this to you today? You will never be more secure than you are right now. Can I get an amen? Well, you already gave me one. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say that again. If you have put your faith in Christ, if you've said yes to God's offer of forgiveness in life, not just here, but after, if you've said you will never be more secure than you are today, What we need to do is we need to delve into what exactly happened in that transaction. You know, that was a transaction when you said yes to him. That was a transaction. Here's what happened. He took your garbage, your yuck. He took what was basically clothing that had been worn by someone that had a bad flu. And he took that and he put it on himself. And it cost him his life. But that wasn't all he did. He took what was his and he gave it to you. Do you know that when you connected, when you accepted, when you put your faith in, do you know that a bank account was open for you in heaven and that bank account has no end? Can I get an amen for that too? Do do you understand what that means? What that means is you have tapped into the bedrock of reality. You have connected to the love that moves the sun and the stars. How are you going to get more secure than that? You are rock-solid secure. Now, if you haven't made that transaction, today is a good day to do that. It's a good day to connect. The offer is open to you. It's open to you. You can make that today. You can say yes today. But we get fooled. And what happens when we get fooled? Well, terrible things. In the late 90s, the stock market took a dip, and it, it does that. <laughs> you should know that. It took a dip, and one of my coworkers, when I was still working up in New York, he lost $80,000 in the stock market. He went home one night after work, and he put a gun in his mouth. Now, most of us are not going to be as dramatic as that. But are we going to live or die? According to our money? Are we going to let a downturn, are we going to let that kill us? No, you, you can get rocked back on your heels. You lose a job. 
or you take a hit financially, yeah, you're going to get rocked back on your heels because that's a loss. But ultimately, you're going to bounce back because your security is not in your money. These people that James talked about, all their security was in their money. So when it evaporated, they were devastated. But we don't have to do that. Our security is in Him. It's in Him. So another deception that I think James's subjects had an issue with, the more money, the better. The more money I have, the better. Do you know money likes to be hoarded? <laughs> money is sticky, right? It's sticky. It sticks to other money. It's sticky. The deception here is that the more I have, the happier I'll be. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the more I have, the happier I'll be? Let's do a thought experiment. Here's the experiment. You get a phone call or or a text from somebody that you care a lot about. Let's say it's one of your grown-up children, or if you don't have kids, just somebody that you care about, and you care about their happiness. You want them to be happy. And you get this communication from them. And in this communication, they tell you that they are considering going into a profession where in this profession, they're going to make boku bucks. They're going to make a lot of money, seven figures. What's your reaction? I know what my reaction would be. It was one of my kids. I'd be like, you go, boy. You go, girl. You know, and I start, start to think, you know, you know, I raised this kid, so, you know, that reflects well on me. And, you know, hey, if they're making seven figures, maybe uh, daddy can get that new Corvette he's always been looking at. But what would your reaction be? Would it be awesome? It may even be something like this. We can do a lot of good things with that money. We can finally give to the charities we've always wanted to give to. Awesome. Fantastic. You've done well. This actually happened to one of my favorite authors, Paul Miller. In his book, The Praying Life, which I definitely recommend, awesome book, this actually happened. One of his kids told him about uh, they're considering a career. I'll use his words. He says, one of my kids was considering a career that would make him wealthy. I broke out in a cold sweat. He goes on. There's absolutely nothing wrong with earning a lot of money. I'm just keenly aware of what wealth can do to your soul. Now that's a different perspective, isn't it? That's different. Have any of you watched the TV show, The Hoarders? Okay, those that haven't seen it's in its, its sixth season, so it must resonate with at least uh, some of the TV viewing population. It's a documentary show. It depicts the quote, the struggles of those who suffer from compulsive hoarding. You know, people are ill. You know, in a way, it's one of those voyeuristic shows. Here's the way it usually goes. I've seen it a few times, and it usually goes like this. You've got someone that lives in a house or an apartment, and it's just filled with stuff. And usually a relative comes by, and they do an intervention. And they say, you can't live like this anymore. And so the hoarder agrees to get the crew in, of course, with the camera. Can't miss that. Have the crew come in and clean out 
the house or the apartment. And what's interesting is to watch the hoarder as the house is being cleaned out because it's painful for them. Everything that's carted out of that house is like ripping away living tissue from this person. And there's one episode, apologies in advance for this. It was really like an archaeological dig. And they're going through strata after strata in this lady's living room. And the crew, the crew finds a cat. I did apologize in advance. The cat's quite dead. And the cat is flat. And, sorry, it's grotesque. So they pull the cat up by the tail. And it's dead, it's flat, and it's perfectly preserved. And, of course, then the woman says, I always wonder what happened to that cat. (laughs) Yes, this is what I spend my precious time at home doing, watching these shows. (laughs) You know, I think some of us are like that cat. We're buried under our own stuff. And our lives have been flattened away. And I wonder, just as we look at this hoarder with feelings of disgust, um, angst, I wonder if, if that's how God sees us when we hoard, when we keep things to ourselves, when we think that they're actually ours to keep, when we allow the stickiness of money to overcome what's the third thing James talks about? Another theme that I saw in here is that James is going to talk to us a little bit about the idea that what I do with my money only affects me. So what I do with my money only affects me. James talks about cheating the workers. He says, you've cheated the workers that have mown your fields, which is a reminder to me to pay my son for mowing my lawn. I don't want to be an object lesson here. But what is he talking about? Again, did these people decide that, you know what, I'm not going to pay my workers. I don't think they woke up and decided that. I think that they were shaped by a disdain for the poor. You know, when you spend money, it affects other people. You can't spend money or deal with money in a vacuum. It does not exist in a vacuum. We are valuing creatures, you know that? We ascribe value to things. Right now, this microphone is more valuable to me than this stool. We ascribe value. Now, the problem happens when we ascribe value to people. This one person is more valuable than others. James already talked about this, and Dean preached on this when he talked about favoritism. And in the very early part of this book, James is talking to his readers and saying, don't show favoritism to people that are rich. Don't ascribe more value to them because that's just not right. You can't do that. But we do. We ascribe a higher value to some over others based on their wealth. You know, if you read throughout the Bible, the law, the Psalms, the prophets, And into the New Testament, you get the same message. God cares about the poor. God's eye is on the runt. God's heart is toward the underdog. Actually, Jesus said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What we do with our money matters. 
It matters to God. It matters to each other. You know, some of you may know the story of John Woolman. Uh, we're going to go back in time a little bit. He was a Quaker, a Christian sect from, uh, from yesteryear. He lived in the 18th century. And one day, he decided that he was not going to use or purchase products made by slavery. So he decided, I'm not going to use these. And you know, in, in that time, that was really hard. That's almost like boycotting things made in China. I'm not going to use these products that are made in, from slavery. And that idea spread. And John Woolman would visit with other Quakers, and he would talk about these ideas. And from this one guy saying, I'm not going to buy this stuff because it's made by slave labor, the Quakers, within a, a generation, became abolitionists. Actually, by 1770, slavery was eliminated from every single Quaker home about 100 years before the rest of the country. When we buy stuff, do we ever ask if, was this stuff made by somebody who's in slavery? Somebody who doesn't even get paid a living wage? Am I perpetuating this by buying this? And I have to say this, folks. Let me say, some of you are much more smart about this, <laughs> much smarter than I am. I'm not an economist. And I know that some of the stuff is not black and white. Some of it's murky. You go to the store, and it's hard to figure out who made what. And I get that. I get that. But I have to say this. I think we need to have a conversation about it. Because we spend a lot of money, and we can influence things in the world by how we spend. So I don't have answers for this, but we need to have a conversation. Because not to do so is to disdain the poor which we don't want to do. Now, some of you know, I changed jobs recently. And I now, I work downtown. And I started taking the Silver Line when it opened up. Can I get a woohoo for the Silver Line? <laughs> yes. Which, as I learned, as I saw one of the posters, it's my Silver Line. Okay. I was very happy that they made a train station just for me. It's my Silver Line. And it has improved my commute, Washington, D.C. style. It costs me more money <laughs> and has increased the time that it takes to commute. But it's an improvement. It's an improvement. It's a silver line. So as I'm on the silver line, coming out of one of the stations, and I'm not used to this because, again, just started working downtown, I see somebody begging. And what do most people do as they see somebody begging there in the station? It's almost like a, a particular posture that people take. And I learned it already. You know, it's a quick glance, and then you walk even a little quicker. And that may be a good time to get involved on your Blackberry or fiddle with the phone. I happen to notice this particular person. I'm just going to give you some insight what I was thinking. I couldn't help but notice he was a little chubby. Some of you might be thinking, it takes one to know one. Yes. <laughs> But that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, he's a little chubby. And I also happen to think that he's a guy in his maybe late 20s, early 30s. I happen to also think that he looks able-bodied. Why isn't he working? He looks like he could get a job. I pay taxes. There are services for this man. And I walk by him. Why did I walk by him? 
Well, I'm busy. I had to get to work. Yeah, but that's no excuse because I saw him also when I left work on the way home. Well, because the flow of traffic was going past him. Nobody else was stopping. So I didn't stop either. And I walked past him. And I thought to myself as I was preparing this, was that right? Why did I do that? Does it at least partly have to do with the fact that I was going home to my tastefully decorated suburban home with lots of food in the refrigerator? That I was coming home from a job where I have status. I'm somebody there. That might it have to do with that? Might it have to do with the fact that I don't know what it's like to take a piece of cardboard and write homeless on it, or need food, or will work for food. What have I become? What have I become that I could walk past this guy? Don't I know? I read this book. I read this. Don't I know that in the life of Jesus, that a lot of the life-changing ministry in the life of Jesus happened when he was on the way to somewhere else? Did you ever get that when you read the Gospels? Jesus is actually on his way to somewhere else and an opportunity presents itself and he dives in. And lives are changed. So what have I become? How have I allowed my eyes to be misshapen that I barely saw this man? Now what about us? What about us? Why do we need to get this right? Why do we need to get this right? One word I have not used so far is the word idolatry. I haven't used that. But I'm going to use it now. James is describing a group of people whose God is money, their stuff, their possessions. And money is a terrible God. It will let you down. And I have to say this. As much as we talk about our busyness, and all the other things that keep us from God, throughout the ages, God's chief rival has been money. God's chief rival has been money, which is why Jesus says, you can't serve two masters, you cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve two of them. So why is it so important that we get this right as a church? It has to do with a dream. Those of you that are visiting, you should know that this is a church that's got a dream behind it. It's got a dream. Ed Allen had a dream. He had a dream about a church that had tremendous spiritual depth and power. So much so that the woman in the dream, Lucy, there's a woman, Lucy, in the dream, and she is demonized. You can't get worse than that, folks. She's demonized. And she finds healing and restoration in the church, in this church. You guys, you minister to her. You are the ones that push back the darkness. It is you. Which is why we need to be in a place as a church where... We're not serving money. Our life energy is not going toward our stuff. 
We have to get there. Because otherwise, Lucy is going to come and we're going to walk right by her. We can't be there. We have to get to a place as a church where our energy, our life energy, our hope is in God. Not in our stuff. Not in our possessions. Are you with me? Do you want to get there? I want to get there. I want to get there. Look, I've got gray in my hair. I don't have time to play church. I don't have time for that. I want to get to that place where Lucy is going to show up on our door and we're going to have the spiritual power. We're going to have the depth. We're going to have the love to lead her through healing. God's going to send lots of Lucys to us. And they're going to be in all states. Some of them, their lives are going to be destroyed. Some of them, they will have destroyed their own lives. And they need to be restored. And that's you, church. Otherwise, that beautiful building across the street is going to be nothing more than a country club. I don't think you want that. I think you want to be, you want to be here. How do we get out of this? How do we get reshaped? I just want to read a little bit of what James says in the next chapter. He says, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. One thing, and talking about this with my wife Lisa, one thing that jumps up in this passage, farmers. You know, farmers don't have a backup plan. They don't have a backup plan. They don't have a plan B. They do what they're supposed to do. They plant, and then they wait. And they are absolutely powerless to control the weather, the sun, the rain, and they know that. And if the sun and the rain don't come through, you know what happens to the farmers? They don't eat. They have no backup plan. What we need to do is, we need to get rid of the backup plan. Some of us, we've allowed our lives to be shaped in such a way that we have our means and our money and God is the backup plan. Well, John, what do you mean? Well, doesn't this work for for healing? When we pray for healing... In the back of our minds, we think, well, if this doesn't work, yeah, I've got Blue Cross Blue Shield. And I am not against doctors, folks. They are a blessing from God. But I wonder if, because we rely on our means, we let God off the hook. And we don't lean into him with all of our weight as we need to. So we need to get rid of the backup plan. So today, where is your security? Where is it? Is it in your bank account? Your holdings? Is it in your job? Where is your security? He invites us today. He invites us. Put your security in Him. Put it in Him. The backup plan is just, it's not going to work. Put it in him.
in that LASIK office, there was a basket. No, it's not the offering basket. There was a basket in the office as people left surgery and went into post-op, which was basically a bunch of us sitting around in sunglasses. There was a basket on the counter, and in the basket was a pile of glasses. We were invited to put our glasses that we no longer needed into the basket. Now, I didn't do that because those things cost like $300. (laughs) And how do I know that I'm not going to need them? You know, I just got surgery. I don't know if this is going to work. Brothers and sisters, it's okay to throw your glasses in the basket. It's okay because we don't need these. We don't need a backup plan. We don't need a what if. Our security is in the one who said he will perform his, his will through us. He invites us to be part of that. He invites us to be part of what he's doing on this planet. Let's pray. Lord, I'm always aware that there's so much more that can be said. I thank you so much for the invitation to lean into you, to be like the farmer that has no backup plan, but knows that you're going to deliver, you're going to come through. We thank you for your faithfulness. So God, let these words reverberate where they need to touch in our lives.